Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted has significantly impacted how I see my place in the world. After connecting with the adoption community over a decade ago, I recognized the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? I met Mark over a decade ago when I was his birth mother's roommate at an AAC conference in Orlando, Florida. He lives in Chicago, but is from New York. I've learned so much from his perspective on the subject of adoption. We've met up at AAC conferences together again over the years in Cleveland, Denver twice, San Francisco, and Atlanta. Our bond has been most wonderful as we both continue to process being in birth family reunion that's well beyond the honeymoon stage. In this episode, you will meet a most intelligent, thought-provoking, and insightful person who happens to be an adoptee. Mark effortlessly makes me smile and laugh. He is one of the most generous people I know. I can remember him as a Northsider, getting tickets for me, my son, and my son's friend to attend a Cubs baseball game for free. We all had a great time that I won't ever forget. Mark is that kind of guy. Allow me to introduce you to someone who has been involved in the adoption community for decades and knows the immense value it is to connect sooner rather than later with members of the Constellation. Mark Bourne. All right, you ready? Yes. Yeah, so I haven't talked to you in a long time. I think we spoke around Mother's Day last year, even during the pandemic. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe we did. You know, the the days go by so fast for me, and I just know, I feel like I've just been kind of isolated <laughs> since since last March. Well, I'm glad you're a, doing all right. I'm a very competitive adoptee, both secretly and uh, overtly, so my days go faster than yours, Jennifer. I bet they do. You know, we met many years ago at the AAC in Orlando. And actually, I've roomed with your mom. Correct. Yeah, your your birth mom. I roomed was my roommate, and it was actually the beginning of me really getting involved in the adoption community. And so, of course, I met you back then. Where do you want to start? You want to start with your story, or since since you mentioned uh, where we met, I remember when you came into the room. Uh, I had spoken to you briefly on the telephone, and we met. We talked for. Oh, it had to be a solid 45 minutes until some sort of a speech keynote or something was coming up. You were, you impressed me as one of the most intensifying active listeners, giving me eye contact and facial responses, <laughs> which show that you were interested in what I was saying. You were following 
yeah. what I was saying because yeah. it was a lot of detail. And that was very nice and made it just nicer, more comfortable to want to know you and, and get to know you as we've we've done. Yeah, we have. We've really remained in contact from that day to this because in Chicago, you're still there. And, and when I get to come there, I'm like looking forward to seeing you and we've been able to just really stay in touch and then of course I've stayed in touch with your birth mom uh, through the years as well and I just want to say I'm so glad you made it to my birthday party in 2014 anyway that's just a side note so I'm gonna let you it was talk the most impressive birthday party I ever attended <laughs> certainly the well that the was a big one locale was the most uh was the most exciting yeah well that was a big one 50 is pretty yeah, I'm atop like, the, man, atop I have the Sears to... Tower. Yeah, we had a good time. But enough of that. So tell me. Right. Well, it, it's, uh, I know what how you entitle your podcasts. So I wanted to tell our audience that it's very hard to characterize my personal adoptive journey. I say journey because the story can be imaginary as well as a real event, but often told f- for entertainment. And... But, but another definition is just surrounding past events in one's life, in this case, my adoptive life, and how it evolves. So brevity is not my strong suit, so it's, <laughs> it might be more difficult for me to simplify or in an organized way tell about my adoption journey because I'm long-winded rather than short, and I tend to go off on vulnerable tangents. So getting lost, is, <laughs> is, quote unquote, is part of my own lifelong experience. I bet there are people that can relate to that, though, that are listening. But I don't think you can get any more real, you know, from something like this podcast with you, Jennifer Ghostin. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's my first. Well, thank and you. Thank you for I'll saying close, yes. And I'll close with that with saying nonfiction, which is the journey or story of of uh, of an adoptee is actually what happened sharing the most intimate way without intentionally trying to take on any variation of a license or anything like that it's exactly as we remember it to the best that we can and it's a very you know private adoptee experience which adoptees can further evolve by sharing that experience with with others for their own growth and the growth of anyone connected to the what used to be the adoption triangle now it's the adoption family and just adoption in, in totality just mm-hmm. widespread with whatever branch of the tree it takes right so my story began in 1954 it was a private sealed adoption in new york state i come from a jewish birth mother and an italian sicilian birth father adopted into a Methodist registered nurse, adoptive mother, and an MD who's a pediatrician, allergist, and a psychotherapist on the adoptive father's side. But my adoptive parents separated in 1955 and were divorced in Tijuana, Mexico in 1957. So I did grow up in a single parent household with one two-year-old or non-biological sibling. And then my adoptive father could not handle and elected not to exercise visitation. So I grew up without a father uh, for the second time till he called me one day out of the blue when I was 13. From that experience, and I'd like to back regress when we can and tell you about some pre-birth uh, details and what happened between 
the three days between being born and being picked up by the adoptive parents, it's very significant. It's somewhat of a gut-wrenching story, of which I've never come across one similar to it. But this whole experience has led to a life of free-floating anxiety, uh, extreme conscientiousness, to do well, to excel if possible, a lot of internal pressure, uh, trying to be for the first 20 years of my life a perfectionist until I, after my medical and psychology background, I realized at age 22, I was what I coined a defeated perfectionist. So I lived the first 22 years trying to be perfect and the second 44 years as a defeated perfectionist, still with stress and uh, self-consciousness and excessive attention to detail and comparing myself to others and being competitive, you know, secretly and, and openly, you know, if it was an athletic event or, or something like that. I want to tell our audience that the adoption conferences, what biology has to do with our births and how during the gestation period, things are being formulated. The baby actually has experiences, you know, through the mother, they can hear things and they can detect stress. It can cause kicking movements, different things like that. But the most important thing, I guess more so in healthy births, but is the billions of neurons which are being connected at that early time when we, we come out and how the pathways, which becomes our circuitry, which is totally unique, uh, comes about and it's the beginning of the biology and then when you're on the outside connecting with the, the the nature with the nurture and how that determines our you know personality i had what's considered by experts what i've learned that study this and it was very new came about in the late 90s is that my adoption experience of never being held by my birth mother never seeing my birth mother and having that interaction never getting the mother's scent had a deleterious effect on my connection of the neurons on my personality formulation that mm -hmm. it's better if you're with your mother for one day for two days for days or a week or weeks or a few months or one two or three years and then being cut off so never having had that put me at even more of a disadvantage that if you allow me to say that adoption might leave you open for you know, potential crisis or conflict, but that kind of maelstrom of events in my beginning has affected with an E and affected with an A my entire life. And no matter how much you can grow and take layers off of that and heal and learn more through experience and from talking to others and, and um, joining something like I joined the American Adoption Congress and finding out a vast wealth of information and sharing experiences and learning about others, uh, it's still, it still has an effect. Mm -hmm. And personally, I've realized maybe 10 to 15 years ago that there are things that one does unconsciously, subconsciously, even consciously to recreate that frenzied turn of events that you started your life with. And that affects our per interpersonal relationships, you know, and our sexual relationships and how we view ourselves in terms of confidence and allowing ourselves to, to succeed. And uh, in my case, I grew up with a fear of failure, concomitant with a developed fear of success. So I had both. So that was a very difficult way to be. So to find out how these events were created, it made 
me feel that that it was biology with things beyond my control, you know, that, that it wasn't me and I didn't do anything wrong and having two sets of, of uh, partial rejective parents and everything was, uh, was not my fault. Yeah. And that's really, I think a big conversation when I think about the wiring, so to speak of my brain being separated from the smells and like you say, the sounds and everything in utero. It's like, yeah, your brain is going to be rewired or I should say wired differently than it would if, say, we had remained with what was familiar to us. Um, That's an absolute statement. Yeah, after birth, yeah. If I said 25 years ago, at first, I mean, a lot of adoption groups started with, with birth mothers and support groups, you know, branched off from that. But most people were lay people, lay persons, and to, to get help through a social worker, a licensed clinical social worker, a psychiatrist, or just someone in the counseling field, they weren't trained specifically to deal with adoption issues. Mm-hmm. And if anything, it would have been more geared toward adoptive parents who really didn't have any training. You know, with some people, it's uh, like a disease to not be able to give birth, which was the case with my birth mother. I mean, with my adoptive mother. And uh, so, the, so was... your your sibling was a, another adoptee. Correct. Two years older. Okay. Two years older. Fortunately, now it's therapy has become very specific and therapists are trained for adoptive matters. It could be political. It could be cognitive therapy, behavior therapy. Uh, there's legal support, you know, and we have, um, you know, newspapers writing about it. And we have uh, a lot of adoptees becoming therapists. And it's just wonderful for the adoption community, which is a subset of the larger you know, community. And there are a lot of adoptive people out there. You know, first-time listeners should know that almost everyone knows someone that's adopted. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because if you don't, you just don't know about it. Mm-hmm. You just don't know someone in the extended family was adopted. Now, that's becoming less so, I would think, with the graduation and advancement of adoption, being open and being transparent. And uh, and us coming forward and talking about it. Yeah. American Adoption Congress has always had in their motto or mission statement about secrecy is not good in adoptive matters. Mm-hmm. And speaking so, of um, the adoption community, when did you first get connected, like formally connected? That would have been in very, very early uh, January 1989. I found out I was adopted at 14. My birth mother searched for 16 months, found me. November 6, 1988, and then early in 1989, after coming back actually from a first out-of-town trip to visit my birth mother on the East Coast, I was put in touch with someone who had a very prominent position in the adoption community, and he was a therapist. I called him. I remember I came back from the airport, and I was still on the on the elevated train and in the day of payphones, and I went over and I called this person. And I teared up and everything, telling him that I wanted to take advantage of some counseling and talking about my my life and and learning that I was adopted and about being found by my, my birth mother. And that was the beginning of a of a long, multi year relationship, which maybe it's not supposed to be like that, but which grew into a friendship. And it was really wonderful to to to, to mix the two. And if you're familiar with uh, 
Tuesdays with Maury, you know, this became Wednesdays with this individual and Thursdays with individual. And then at the end became Tuesdays with this individual. And whereas Maury might have, I think the number was like, uh, I don't know, 28 or 42 weeks with Maury. Mine, you know, was like 146 weeks <laughs> uh, until his uh, sudden death. And, and that was invaluable, which I cherish you know, forever and, and, and love the, the man. And this man would speak at various adoption conferences and was a prominent keynote speaker and a beloved man, friend, and therapist of many in the adoption community. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you met your birth mom in 1988. Tell me what that was like. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, it started with a phone call. And then in, in November and then in December, she came to Chicago to, to visit. And then in January or February, I went to uh, the East Coast to, to, to visit her. What was that like? Well, it was anticipatory. It was exciting. If there was any nervousness, I always prided myself in not being nervous. In this case, I mentioned it because it was a positive nervousness or anxiety or anticipation. And I was excited, actually. And I was to go to O'Hare and meet her. And I said, don't tell me what you look like. Don't send me a picture. Don't do anything like that. I want to see if I could recognize you. And what was unusual was I have almost lifelong difficulty with being on time. Not only was I on time, I was a little bit early. (laughs) So (laughs) that made me anxious. (laughs) And I'm watching through the window as they're coming off the plane. And I said, nope, 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 nope. And then I'm like... Am I at the right gate? <laughs> is, is this the right flight? <laughs> and I'm like, did I get the time right? <laughs> right? And then stewardesses are coming off the plane. Right. And then one of the pilots comes off the plane. <laughs> well, <laughs> it just so happens. Then this woman walks off the plane, and I see her from the back with dark hair. Then I see glimpse of the you know fifth of a second profile then she turns around i'm saying that's her that's her and then i confirm that with it's got to be she's the last person coming off the plane (laughs) (laughs) and it just ends up she has the gift of gab and i i'm a loner but i'm an extremely socialized loner and i can certainly do the same thing we have a lot of things in common so she would she engaged the stewardesses even the pilot telling them about her story, why she was on that flight, why she was coming. They were all interested, exchanging numbers, taking pictures, whatever. (laughs) She shared that with me. Yeah, she she shared that whole experience with me. And what stood out to me is one of the stewardesses was also a birth mom who had never told anybody. Like they were on the plane being emotional together. Yeah, like she told me that whole story. I'm not recalling that, so I'm glad you remember and sharing that with me now. Yeah, she she shared it with the stewardess. She hadn't told anybody but her husband, I think, that she had had this baby. So they just bonded on that on the plane, almost kind of keeping the stewardess from doing her job because one of the other passengers was a little bit annoyed that the stewardess and your birth mom were in this conversation for a lengthy time. So, yeah, she told me that. So when you asked me what was it like to meet her, I was <laughs> I was kind of meeting her before we met. <laughs> and that, that was, uh, I, I thought that was noteworthy to this day. I 
someone have uh, some cherishment for that that experience. And then when we met and we hugged, I mean, it seemed like we we, we probably hugged for 20, 25, 30 seconds, which is a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And then I I released, and she said, "Oh, I could have kept on going for the record." You know, you released first. <laughs> that's that's her. Yeah. But it it began well. It was uh, I, I felt I felt good about myself. I felt good finding out most of the information. It was like taking an amphetamine, and I felt that this could be a better way of making sense out of my life and how things progressed as as you know as they did. But then, of, of course, any honeymoon has to end, and it wears off. And then the way I describe it is I certainly had a lot of baggage, which I'll call old baggage, in my life. And then being found by my birth mother, experienced a honeymoon and positiveness, it resulted in new baggage mm. in my life. Mm. Overall, whereas I felt better off trying to combine the best experiences of my extended adoptive family with what may be to come with uh, a partial birth family was uh, was kind of exciting. And mm-hmm. I was looking forward to it in terms of the present day situation and everything and everything in between. It hasn't quite lasted. But to me, I'm better off for the for the experience. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Did you ever want to search for her? Like, had that? No. Okay. And then no, I also a... wanted to ask you when you found out at 14, because I remember when I was 14 so very well, what did that What did that do to you to know that you weren't biologically related to your family? Well, I knew that I, I felt strongly that I didn't come from my mother and I didn't come from the extended family. I didn't look like anyone. And my mother was a little bit of an older parent and she wasn't uh into any sort of tactile affection so you she knew never hugged, hugged me and she didn't verbalize ever i love you so you knew I, you were so you had some sense that you were adopted is that what you're saying i didn't know where i came from but i no no n- never the word adoption never entered my mind or okay, or, or, okay. or anything i just felt i didn't come from my mother i didn't come from that family i was different but i couldn't Put it together. I didn't understand. Now, I was an honor student all the way through, but even though I was smart, I wasn't smart enough, or I just repressed it, or it was too painful, or or whatever. Uh, I I didn't go there, and I the only connection I had to adoption, ironically, was my aunt Margaret and Uncle Don adopted two children because none of the females. None of the four girls of the six children from my adoptive paternal side could give birth. So two never had children. Only the, the boys could have progeny. And so one of the daughters, my Aunt Margaret, adopted two children. And they probably had the most wonderful life, ostensibly, in, in the large adoptive family. And the kids were treated very well. There were a lot of... Uh, a lot of good things that the parents were able to provide for the, the children. I used to go up and visit there, you know, sometimes during Easter or Christmas or spend a week there, you know, during the summer at the lake home and everything like that. It was wonderful. And the kids were a little spoiled too. 
and I had a little secret, although I would have been, you know, not, let's see, the first time I traveled by myself on an airplane, I think I was nine, the old Mohawk Airlines, where everyone used to clap when you landed because it was so bumpy and everyone was so glad to be on the ground. So from, <laughs> you know, nine through 15, I'm, I'm going up there and I'm saying, wow, these kids have a good life. I said, I, I wish I was adopted. Mm. So, so it's kind of sad to know that there were two adoptive fa- kids in the family and it was talked about and everyone knew, but I didn't know. And no one ever mentioned the word adoption to me, mm. no matter how my aunts, my uncles, my, my grandparents even never mentioned it at one time, not too far from afterwards. I found out I was adopted. I remember overhearing a family member saying we treat we treated mark like he was one of us and that stayed with me and then hearing all the 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 girls mainly the jewish girls that would come over after my athletic events when my adoptive mother would would come dressed in the white uniform with the white stockings they'd come to me afterwards say mark was that your mother she doesn't look anything like you and that grew into mark boy were you adopted? <laughs> so with that one day, I got on my black twin bike that I cherished and I rode home as fast as I could. And I asked my mother, I was, you know, 13 and 14 years old. That's how I, that's how I found out. What did she say? Do you remember? I remember the chair she was sitting on, what she was wearing and, and what she was drinking, which I thought was ice water, but ended up being vodka. <laughs> I, I, my adoptive mother was an alcoholic, and I didn't know till I was about 20, 22 years old. And she was exasperated. Her countenance twisted, and she sighed. <gasps> and she called me Marky. And she used to write the letters, M-A-R-C-I-E, dear, my dearest Marky. Just Marky, why are you ask me that? <gasps> and then she would drink from the glass and wince. And she put it down. She started to talk, and she'd drink from the glass and wince. I'm like, what? what is this? And then it was her asking the questions. Why do you want to know? Why are you asking today? You know, Tina came up to me and Robin came up to me and asking me. And I I feel a little strange about it. And, you know, it just might make sense since I don't behave like Henry. and We don't look alike and everything. And she says, well, I don't know. And then she started to profess how good of a mother that she was. I said, Mom, please let me interject. Was I adopted? Yes or no? takes another drink, winces, sighs, and says, yes. That's how I found out. Mm. You really put me there in describing. I feel like I was in the room, the way you described that. And then, of course, she was home. She worked six, seven days a week as a, on the pediatric floor. She was a specialist, a tonsil room nurse. She was the best nurse in the hospital. It's described by many. And she worked in the ICU, the CCU. She always did hated when there were no tonsil patients and her friends who were my adoptive parents best and closest circle of friends because they were all doctors and wives that used to socialize together then my mom ended up being outcasted by the fact that she was a single person had to work all the time and so her friends built the hospital that that she worked in so she was cared for well and everything like that but so she had come home and she had gotten undressed and gotten into her pink chiffon nightgown and got herself a drink and sat in the most comfortable chair in the house 
<laughs> so that's what I that's what I re- remember. She was like slumbering, and she was uh, medicating herself. Is what she was doing. So and then at fourteen, you you didn't realize that she was drinking alcohol. Correct. Not until I a little bit beyond twenty. But let me add one more thing about that. After she said yes, I was talking to her. And during that time, that was about a year after my adoptive father called me out of the blue and said, hi, Mark, this is dad. (laughs) And I began a six-week-long intense interaction relation with him and then he dropped me like he dropped off the face of the work of the world he wouldn't take any more of my calls he wouldn't call me i began a relationship with his service with 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 his nurse with the service people that would answer the phone and everything and they didn't know what was going on and then i didn't see him you know for for about another three years have it being affirmed that i was adopted i started talking to her asking questions and oh the reason i mentioned him was at that time shortly before finding out uh, about three quarters of a year before i developed an intense amount of anxiety i was dealing with the rejection not only growing up without a father being the top athlete in, in my town not having a father there to watch and my mother often too busy to come coming once or twice, you know, and then having father and son dinners, and I'm the only kid to, that doesn't have a father that's going. And then as athletics become more competitive and this whatever, and I'm winning awards and I'm supposed to go to the banquet, it's father and son, I, I you know, I don't want to go. So I was always given complimentary tickets, and the athletic director would, I would tear up a little bit because I was not a crier. He'd say, anytime you're not feeling good or whatever, you want to come, my door is always open just go into my office and sit there and I'll be there eventually which was very nice and I, re- I remember that you know forever but so I was asked of a mother a lot of questions and and as a result of him calling that day I became very talkative about everything that happened so I started telling my mother everything that happened that day it's like I it, it was just my way of coping and so I was probably talking and pacing up and down between the living room and my in my room and about 20 minutes later, I remember, because I looked at the clock, after I looked back at my mother, she was asleep and snoring. So I'm like, at what point did she fall asleep and she was snoring? Probably early on. And then that became a, a thing where I would talk to her and she would just fall asleep. You know, we were close and she extremely over-parentalized me growing up, being in the single family household. And then my brother had a lot of problems and was living outside the house uh, when I was beginning when I was in the third grade and he remained outside the house for the rest of his life. So I was her confidant, which wasn't too good. It it was very, very difficult, but she was very loving and expressed her love in terms of providing, you know, for us. She she was a wonderful woman though. Even with the alcoholism, she was a wonder and always remains a wonderful woman and one of the best role models I've ever come across. And I subsequently met, I think one other woman in my life none of them were girlfriends, where I considered, together with my mother, the three greatest women, the most wonderful women role models and everything that I ever met. Did your birth mom ever meet the mom that raised you? Resounding yes. It was difficult at the beginning. My adoptive mother didn't want to. 
but my adoptive mother is very pushy, self-centered. Your adoptive she, mom? You said you're no, no. The birth mother. Right. Birth, the adoptive mother didn't want to meet. Okay. My birth mother did. Okay. And she's pushy and self-centered to this day, and she does what she wants to do and rationalizes it. She made that happen, and although it was with reticence, my adoptive mother went along with it, and then they knew each other for several years. They had written some, talked on the phone, written some letters, shared some things with each other, and then regularly, once or twice a month, would meet for Chinese food. So and it was, then, it was and, somewhat harmonious, I take it. Yes, but to tell you something about how wonderful the mother that raised me, which really is my mother, she told me later on, she goes, and, and this is even, you know, I'm, I'm over 40 years old. Mark, I really didn't want to because I don't like the way she found you. I don't like the way she found me. I don't like the calls I was getting. It was very uncomfortable, and I don't think it was, it was underhanded the way things were done. She said, but being that I'm considerably older than your birth mother, I want you to have a mother when I'm gone. Mm, so I'm doing it for, I'm doing it for you. Yeah, I just felt that. It went through my bones. <laughs> so what would you say is the best thing about being in reunion? Well, is there, is there, I should, well, not, I, that's I'm a no leading question. Act, is, I'm no longer in active reunion because my mother in 2002 started to deny the relationship and was rejecting me. And then again in 2005 and then in 2017, she denied being my mother anymore and sent me an email the equivalency of a dear john letter saying she didn't want me to call her mom anymore and she didn't want grandchildren and she didn't want to be called grandma and she would just go by the by her first name which was kind of hurtful though yeah. i continued to send mother's day cards and birthday cards but we haven't spoken on the phone for three years and everything so but the best thing is the lack of secrecy and the transparency, knowing, mm -hmm. making the connection where I came from, knowing about the biology and the family circumstances, helping to assuage any guilt, mm. having to assuage the not knowing and making connections and making reconnections in my circuitry, feeling clearer, stronger. I'm a survivor. No matter what happens. Every day I'm happy in life. I never have a bad day. I might have a bad circumstance within the day, but I never have a bad day. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, I've, I've, I've survived this. So I'm better off for knowing, not living my entire life, you know, like, like even though I had a wonderful adoptive family arena, I had this, this anxiety and this not knowing. And I would closet myself and tunnel myself in a particular relationship with a girl on a, a particular athletic team with my studies with many different things kind of compartmentalizing my life without being able to look at it as a whole and looking at eyes at life through the eyes of a child which has i've never lost i've done better but the fact that i can live life through the eyes of a child made it difficult for me to mature you know, as an adult, because I was so susceptible to the sensitivity, the not knowing, the secrecy, the over parentalization as a, as a child growing up. Mm -hmm. So now I know. So there's a strength in that. And I've received 
tremendous support from my friends. I'm rich in friends. I've met tens and tens, probably scores of people through American Adoption Congress, you know, as, as they move around the country to different st- cities to try to introduce themselves to as many adoptees as possible and many people related to the adoption experience that has been so wonderful. Adoption, the adoption community is, is another family. Mm-hmm. And it's the most wonderful, sensitive, understanding, active, listening with their ear, promulgation of, of transparency of what really happens and feelings and support groups and seminars to choose from, which I think everyone can find something that they're looking for. If not, they'll create it for you. They'll direct you to where it goes. And and so having had that, which I wouldn't most likely have had, not impossible, but without my birth mother finding me. But I want to add, I never wanted to search. And this is the most, this is an unbelievable story. On November 5th, 1988, I went to the Breeders' Cup, which is a horse race in Lexington, Kentucky, where they have the Kentucky Derby Churchill Downs with my best friend. Coming back, okay, it was after midnight. It's like, it's like three, it's like 2.45 in the morning. I said to my best friend, we're about 45 minutes outside of Chicago. So now it's November 7th. John says to me, because of what we were talking about, somehow we were talking about adoption. I came up and he goes, did you, uh, because I said, I, 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 he asked me, do you ever want to look for your mother? Because I think I mentioned a father growing up without a father. And I said, no, I said, what I'd like to do is look for my father because I grew up without one. And the father I had was, there was something wrong with him when I met him. And then he had a stroke and I had to care for him. And so he was doubly off and every, everyone knew that he was off and it wasn't biological. I would like to look for my father. I, I land in Chicago 45 minutes later. I'm ringing the, the doorbell. I'm holding stuff. And she goes on the intercom, my girlfriend. She doesn't buzz me in. She says, I'd rather not say what she said, but I'm like, come on, buzz the door open. And she's talking more. I said, come on, buzz the door open. So she buzzes the door open. And then she says what she said. And I dropped on the landing what I was carrying. The most important thing is she said, I think your mother, no, no, she said, um, no, she didn't say anything. She didn't use the word mother. But what she said, stimulating me to say, did my mother call? And she says, yes, baby, this woman called. I spoke to her for over an hour. I think it's your mother. So how ironic is that? It is. 45 minutes before my best friend, you know, asked me. And I said, no, I'm not interested. I have a mother, but I'd like to look for my father. Mm-hmm. And then my mother finds me on the phone. Right. Or so it seemed. We talked on the phone for like two hours and 39 minutes. I kept the AT&T printout. I still have it. Wow. And then sp- spoke to her on the, on, on the phone that morning, which I regret needs to be noted. I, I regret that phone call. I regret the fact that my girlfriend dialed a number. I said, look, I'm tired. And I was in the bathroom taking care of business and thinking about this. And I said, I'll call in the morning. She said, no, she said, call anytime. I said, I do not want to speak to her right now. I need some rest. I want to think about it. She dials the number and hands me the phone. Mm. Two hours and 39 minutes thereafter, you know, the phone call kind of ended in in a hellish way and in a very uncaring way, insensitive way on the part of my birth mother. And then that was, and then her 
her husband was an outgrowth, you know, to to to, to that. It was very very negative. So when and your I got girlfriend... off the phone, remaining positive, but I, I I'm like I I wish I that call didn't happen. So your girlfriend places a call to your birth mom, and that two hour conversation was the first time you had talked to her. Correct. Wow, and it didn't end well. It didn't end during, on a high note. Well, during the call, my mother is asking me a ton of questions. I mean, that's a Jewish thing to ask a lot of questions, but she asked questions on top of questions. They were invasive. They were highly personal, mm. and she was opinionated, and she was getting upset with my adoptive situation, oh, and she was so. getting mad at the obstetrician, and she was making ag- accusations that she was going to sue the doctor. And she was not happy with the life after answering the questions, the life I had. She felt deceived. And then after that, at the end, she said, well, you're probably my son, but, uh, you know, I I need proof. I need you to do this. I need you to get a written statement from the doctor and everything. So after going through all that and being tired and being, unfortunately, in that case, the, the, the good adoptee, the good little adoptee, which I thought was actually a term. But I couldn't find it coined any, any anywhere. So I self-described myself as being the, you know, the good little adoptee, doing what, you know, was asked or, or what was a sensitive area and what someone really wanted, you know, without thinking really how I, I necessarily felt about it. Mm-hmm. Just like instant, instant acceptance. That was uh, uncomfortable. And then uh, at the end of the conversation, she's telling me how she has a wonderful husband. So I asked her. To put the wonderful husband on, I'd like to introduce myself over the telephone. She said, that's not possible. I said, why? And she said, because he doesn't want to talk to you. I said, how does that come about? And she said, well, I can do anything I want, but he doesn't approve of of it, so he doesn't want to talk to you. I said, well, maybe I can do something about that. I, I was confident in everything, and I have good social skills and everything. So I said, put him on the phone just for a minute. He came on the phone, and I said, his name was, well, without saying his name, I said, hi. You know, I'm Mark. It's, uh, you know, a pleasure just to, to say hello on the phone. He says, well, Mark, with a New York accent. L- you let me sound just, tell- just like him. <laughs> l- l- <laughs> let me just tell you that I don't care about you. Mm. I don't care anything about you. Mm. But I care about my wife, and there's nothing on this planet that I wouldn't do for her. And that's it. Goodbye. Mm. So that, and after being upset with my adoptive situation, upset with my adoptive mother, with my adoptive parent, with the doctor, and talking almost salaciously, like something was done to her, that someone else was responsible for her decision, in in my case, horrible decision to to relinquish, uh, and somehow she's the victim. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. My see, my mother, my mother. From all I've ever experienced through American Adoption Congress, through films, through books, through periodicals, through conferences, through encounter groups, through support groups, through hearing keynote speakers, internationally known experts, having had many adoption stories shared with me, my mother had the best case birth mother scenario. I mean, ever. I mean, this is in the 50s, but the environment within her own household and her extended family was one of acceptance, nurturing, love. You can keep the child. Two older siblings, women, 
saying the middle one saying because she was 16 and pregnant we'll say the child is mine you'll when you start the show in seven months we'll send you to a cousin you'll come back deliver the child and it's mine you can continue on with high school although she told me at first mind-blowingly that i was the second immaculate conception that she never did the act and proof of that was if subsequently when she got married if she knew what the act was she would have been partaking it more regularly so she was in denial about the fact that she did something which resulted in a child. I mean, that's mind blowing, but that's who she is. She's a mind blower. So, and then she had a 22 or 23 year old older sibling, a brother who was not keen on it at first, but came on board. Her mother said, you can keep the child. And her father who was living outside of the home said, you could keep the child. And then she had a proposal of marriage for my birth father. And not only that it would have been my birth father's mother, my grandmother, Margaret, said, our door is always open to you. If you don't want to marry my son, Salvatore, we will take the child and raise it, big Italian family. You won't want for anything, and you can come anytime that you want. Uh, but actually, I don't think she said no, according to her. I just think she listened to it and left, and, and that was it. They found out you know, in, in, in a different way. On day one, when I was born, my birth father called her on the phone and asked how the, the baby was. And now my mother's the horse's mouth on this. And she answered, what baby? You know, you're in the hospital. You just gave birth. You gave me the number. I'm calling you. And she said, the baby died. The baby's dead. She, two, she told you that that's what she said? Yes. Mm. She said, I told Sal the baby died to get rid of him. Then on day two, a man called who was smitten with her, who was older, was in one of the service branches. And he was going to go. Uh, I believe overseas, and he said that he was interested in her and wanted her to wait for him, and he wanted to go out when when they got back. And she started to cry, and she said she she couldn't do that. And he said why? And she told me, quote, because we've talked about this many times. I have a terrible dark secret, and if you knew what it was, you'd want nothing to do with me. End quote. He, he, she wouldn't disclose what it was. He's a smart guy. He says, "Do you have a child?" She answers, "Yes." Just like my mother said. Oh, yes. She goes, yes. Mm. He asks, is the father in the picture? She goes, no. So he says, what age is the child? It's a newborn. He goes, I want you to wait for me. I want to marry you and we'll raise the child as our own. My birth mother says, I can't. We can't. He goes, why? Because it's too late. Why is it too late? Because I signed the adoption papers already. So I could have... She didn't want to marry Sal. She could have married this man. Mm -hmm. And they could have raised me to get together. And she said she didn't later post adoption. She, she said she wanted me to be raised Jewish. Well, it took me till age 45 to realize it was right in front of my nose that if she wanted me raised Jewish, all she had to do was keep me. Mm. But now she met this man who is Jewish, who she's now married to for 65 years. And she had an opportunity to be married and to have me raised Jewish. She said, no, it's too late. They went, I'm dead. Day two, it's, it's too late. She signed the papers. And then day three comes along. What does she do? She signs the papers. So she lied about me dying and she lied. She lied to my birth father and she lied to her husband. She got both of them, you know, out of the picture and that was it. And I asked her why. And she said, because she didn't want to be burdened uh, through life with a child. She didn't want to work waste the rest of her life and be burdened with a child. Five years later, she had three children, three girls. 
So I was the first born and the, you know, the only male. So she denied me, you know, my, 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 my birth father. And I've never gotten over that. And I never will a hundred percent. She admitted, took her, actually it took until I think it was 2004, 2006. I'm not sure what the year was, but I believe it was the year that we met in Orlando. She didn't even say it to me. But she talks about me a lot in the third person. And a lot of adoptees, we refer to ourselves in the third person. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience type of a thing. But she's talking to someone else who she had just met one or two minutes before. And they're talking about things. And I'm sitting on the couch. They're standing up. And she says to this person, who's a woman, birth mother, the only thing I might regret is that I denied Mark his birth father. That probably wasn't, you know, the thing to do. I should have given him to his father. So you never got to meet your birth father? He died in 1985. Sherry found me late in 1988. And another crime, another crime is in 1989 when I went to New Jersey, referred to twice earlier as the East Coast. So the identify information is, 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 is New Jersey because she spent 16 months and kept filled up a couple of notebooks with her searching, she wanted me to do the same thing. She got me a notebook and she said, uh, start looking up in the yellow pages here. This will keep you occupied the rest of the afternoon. Start calling numbers out of the Manhattan yellow pages. And here's, here's Queens. And, and, um, there were a lot of last names, Messina, M-E-S-S-I-N-A. It's, it's a common name. And I started cold calling and trying to get a feel for if that might be the right one. I spent hours doing that. And then the next day, she wanted me to go out and search some of these addresses and everything. He had died four years earlier, and she wants me to go on an active search and all this and all of the emotion, everything that brings up, because she went through it. So you're saying she already knew he had passed? Correct. Hmm. Well, Mark. That's, that's not nice. I, I would agree that's not nice. You're putting it very politely. So, <laughs> and, and, then, and then on top of that, on top of that, <laughs> there's more, Mark. Is there more? She had my mother suffered from GSA, genetic sexual attraction. Oh, that's when you're attracted to. Right. Because yeah. she never saw me, never held me, never knew me and could not nurture me and get any tactile stimulation when I was a newborn. The only way. This has happened to about 20% of birth mothers. They can express affection as an adult is through sex. So she was sexually attracted to me and wanted to sleep with me. Yes. Yeah, I don't she, know much about that, but you say 20%. Yeah, right. 20% of birth mothers experience this. I so, heard that's a thing with siblings as well, like any member of the birth family in reunion. Is that true? Have you studied anything or researched that? No, not with the siblings, but I've, that, that's, not, that's not uncommon. It's not, it's in the Minari, but it's not uncommon. Mm. But that was, you know, my mother also told me she fantasized that the way she would find me is her oldest daughter would meet me and we'd be, be in a dating relationship. That's mm. kind of interesting. Yeah. And what's funny is my mother was like 3.4 miles away. Her oldest daughter attended some of my athletic events because they was, was within this athletic division, small schools, we played each other. And her daughter was also very a prominent athlete and was written up several times in the largest circulation 
the Newsday newspaper in Long Island, New York. And I, of course, would read those articles because I read the sports section every day, would cut articles out and everything like that for all the teams I played to get to know all the players, and I'd share it with my team and everything to strategize. And, and so that was my half-biological sibling. Right. So that's in your genes. That's in your DNA, that whole athletic piece. And I was the best athlete in my school. Right. She played, she played professionally. So, How did you, you know, end so up in Chicago? That's not a story I like to really share. And I've been transplanted from New York too long. New York's my favorite place, followed by Washington, D.C. I don't particularly care for Chicago. And the story just elicits more questions, more questions, more questions. <laughs> Coming to do a specific job, which I won't go into. Okay. All right. So in closing, because, you know, we can get, both of us can get long-winded. What have I not asked you that you would like to impart your wisdom to the adoption community or to adoptees specifically? I'm going to rephrase that. What would what have I not asked you that you would like to share in closing? I understand the question. It's just <laughs> Well, that's really two different questions. I, right. Just I shared a lot of things and shared some things that weren't, you know, questions. I guess the best thing is to be to be true to oneself, try to find clarity, raise your hand and ask questions, find someone that can answer your questions. You know, be honest, ask for that in return, be transparent with your own feelings, don't BS oneself, and uh, trust the uh, the process. Uh, and and when you when that happens experientially, you're stronger for that, for that, for go, having going through that, and you become a, a more total person. At worst case, if that was not one's feeling or experience, for example, with a with a rejection or an acceptance, a honeymoon, and then a rejection or whatever, you're stronger for that. You're better off for that, and you can impart that knowledge and that experience to someone else that may just have an experience which you assisted with and turned out more favorably for them. And we all as adoptees have something to bring to the table to give to another adoptee or to give to a birth parent or to give to an adoptive parent or to give someone involved in the legislature or to give someone involved that's a reporter that can write a, a, a piece in the paper that could, or a magazine or on a website or a podcast or, or, or something that will bring someone to the table, will enlighten someone else, will be the impetus with which that person will want to further pursue the field of concern of, of, of adoption. So it's carrying on, it's passing on, and it's just a wonderful, beautiful thing. But you have to, you have to get started. You have to raise that hand like you're in kindergarten, first grade. You don't know the answer to something. Don't. And, you know, one kid might laugh. The teacher would say, we already covered that. Johnny, talk to me after school. No, you raise that hand. You put it out there. You uh, involve yourself. Don't let anything stop you. I like pursue, that. Pursue what's real for you. If you have to at first, what you want to do, self-validate. One of the most important two words I've said during this podcast, self-validate yourself. And then you'll get validation from other people. Don't depend on others to validate your own experience. It's yours. It belongs to you. It happens to you. Whatever your emotional, mental reaction to that is, it's okay. That's you. What you say and what your experience is and how it affected you, how you perceive it, no matter what anyone else says, that's real. And that's validation of yourself. 
and you've experienced that and, and you survived that. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Jen. I really like um, raise your hand and self-validate. I nearly forgot to ask Mark about requesting his birth certificate once New York changed its adoption law in 2019. Listen to what he had to say. So Mark, you know, New York changed recently changed their law. Did you request your original birth certificate? I did not. I have not. But I will. <laughs> and I, co- <laughs> I commit to procuring my original birth certificate. Okay. However, I think it still stems from conflict and probably some anxiety and the fact that I deny myself things. I deny myself, even though I'm happy every day, sometimes feeling too good in instances and having uh, having success to get my original birth certificate and see those names on there because I've always had an amended one. And even as a small child, when I, when I first in elementary school needed a birth certificate, I was uh, wondering uh, why it looked the way that it did and, and why the uh, it was beyond the year that it was filed and all sorts of different things. I mean, I've been working for open records, you know, in many different states and across the country, lobbying, walking around uh, the hotel in New York City, you know, on the news. And, and it's a big thing. And uh, the person that's hosting this podcast, it was a big thing in, in Illinois. And it was uh, celebrative on the front page of the Chicago uh, Tribune and resulted in uh, a political person in the state assembly and and uh, Jen and several others uh, traveling to Cleveland for an American Adoption Congress. And it was just wonderful to kind of enjoy myself with that, even though I, I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's great. Everyone wants to get their original birth certificate. Absolutely. So then I guess a year and a half ago or so, and I had written personal emails and got responses to, 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 to the, the now disgraced Governor Cuomo <laughs> of, you know, of New York. Right. And then I was, because of my life is uh, sometimes too hectic, uh, I didn't even realize till maybe a month or two after it, it became open, that it was open. And then I just procrastinated and, and, and delayed until one day I mentioned it to a close friend. She enlisted herself to uh, get a copy of an application so I can uh, do it by mail. And she went out of her way to meet me the next day with it and everything like that. And I put the money aside to do it and everything. Then I got lost and I never did it. And then I revisited. I never did it. I never did it. I still haven't done it. And I think it's because of the connection to way back then. There's just something about it. You know, I don't feel pain. I don't feel mental or physical pain or anything. But I'm not allowing myself to 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 have it. And it's strange. It's weird. It's it's kind of hard to put you know my finger on. But I've been procrastinating about doing it. I mean, I I I can afford the process. You know, and then I try to do it online. It says, oh, it's going to be an additional $18. So I'm like, okay, I'll just mail it. <laughs> what, what? So I'll get it. I don't need to get it in, in two to three weeks. I'll right. get it in four, four to five weeks. But right. then I don't do that. And then I revisit it, revisit it. And it's like, not the right time. I don't have the quietude to do it. I don't, I don't, it's not that important to me. And I don't do it. And then I think in, in some way, I get some sort of satisfaction, negative satisfaction, delayed satisfaction in the fact that, oh, look, it's available. I can get it. Everyone's running to get it. And I'm not. So I think it stems from the early adoptive process of the way I'm, my circuitry is and everything like that. And at 66, it's nonsensical. It's not pragmatic. It's not practical. It's just a shame. And, and, and what, I do, what I do here, I went somewhere on the podcast 
<laughs> say that as an adoptee, as, 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 as I am, I make something simple into a complexity. Mm. And I've done something simple like filling out a form and making a check or doing something online with, with a debit or credit card into something that's complex that goes way beyond. And, and that's not uncommon in my, in my 66 years. I simply love when Mark says, raise your hand. I believe that is the best idea for adoptees when coming to realize the impact adoption has had on our lives. And his description of self-validation is everything. Whenever I have an opportunity to visit Chicago, I think of how hanging out with Mark will add to my healing as an adoptee. Thank you, Mark, for having a conversation with me for the podcast. And I look forward to many more chats with you, even if they don't make an episode on Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You always inspire me to stay connected to the community. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review, subscribe, give a rating, tell a friend or someone who you believe might find value in it. Remember to share this podcast on social media to spread the word. Hashtag Adoptee Land.